Welcome to the Thrive Church Podcast. Listen anytime you miss a service or want to hear a message again from our Sunday worship services and select special services. Lead Pastor Brian Bauer, as well as guest speakers, will bring messages that will help you encounter God, love people. Join us for virtual service on Facebook Live at Encounter Thrive, or for those comfortable, we'd love to have you for our in-person services Sundays at 10. To learn about us, what we believe, how to connect, how to give, or how to find us, visit the all-new EncounterThrive.com. And now, here is our message. Well, good morning, Thrive. PJs and Pancakes Sunday. So before you ask, I will just answer. You're like, where are your PJs, Pastor Ryan? In the appropriate places. Um, I realize I have no preaching PJs. I looked. I have kind of a funny onesie thing. And I just, I, something about delivering God's word in that, I just did not. And then this morning, I, I, have, a new, I have a new T-shirt that is... Uh, it's the Swedish chef from the Muppets that says, Murdy Christmas. And I put it on, I was like, well, that's fun and still festive, right? Because I love Christmas. I'm on board with all the things. I did already have, I did have the pancakes, so I'm halfway there. And so, but I put it on, and all you could see was the Swedish chef's head. None of the words, just the Swedish, and I'm like, so I'm going to preach, and for 30, 40 minutes... You're just going to see the Swedish chef just saying, like, we're going to live the world. You know, like, it's just, it's just not going to work. <laughs> I'm like, I just can't. So forget it. You know, just lay it down. And, and trust me, you don't want to see me in pajamas. It is it's really my gift to you. Merry Christmas. All right. So, so um, <laughs> oh, there's jokes I want to make. But I won't. <laughs> Um, it's funny, but I, I mean, I love, you guys know I love Christmas. I love it so much. And I love, uh, really, uh, Kimmy and Lauren did a ton this month. Kimmy, especially, yeah, to make Christmas happen, all the themes this week. Uh, Kimmy's been here faithfully putting up all these lights every week. Uh, so they've just been amazing. And I, it's funny, though, some of the things that we do love, right? Like, that we say, oh, I love this. I love that. And things we really do, we, are, we love and are passionate about. One of the things some people are really passionate about is fashion, right? Looking good, having nice things. And, and here's a few funny fashion things over the years. Uh, uh, several hundred years ago, lotus shoes were, these are an example of lotus shoes, were worn by Chinese girls with bound feet. For centuries, families repeatedly broke and folded the feet of their younger daughters to create tiny feet that epitomize femininity. Now, pause right there. Why are small feet attract? Like, I get, okay, nobody, maybe clown feet aren't attractive. You're not like, your foot's like 18 inches long. Like, oh, that's weird. You know, if yours is, thanks, we're glad you're here. But um, <laughs> it, it boggles the mind how this was found extremely attractive. And the foot was bound with long ribbons to prevent growth. If the toes w- and, and eventually the toes withered and fell off uh, on many women, and that would be even better, right? Can you imagine that, living in a society where a clubbed foot is like, man, she is good looking. <laughs> no toes at all. <laughs> and the process usually took two to three years, and the girl's feet would be bound for the rest of her life. And they would wear the lotus shoes in the cone or sheath-shaped footwear represent a lotus bud. Um, Eventually, that was outlawed. Thank God, right? Uh, Next one, here's a funny one. Uh, Stiff 
starched collars. Not like now, an insane starch collar. These detachable collars were popular in the 19th century, and they could be deadly. Starched to the point of being nearly unbendable and attached with a singular pair of studs, the collar could slowly strangle a man, particularly if he fell asleep or passed out while drinking. Another dangerous aspect of the collar was its pointed corners. A St. Louis man tripped in the street and the pointed collar uh, jabbed into his throat, making two ugly gashes. Uh, they were known lethal. They were known as the father killer. Like, going out tonight, putting on some father killer. <laughs> what? And then lastly, here's my favorite one. Uh, arsenic dresses. No nickname, just right in the name, arsenic dresses. Bottle green dresses were all the rage in the Victorian era, Victorian era, and they had price tags to match. To achieve this lovely shade of green, the fabric was dyed using large amounts of Arsenic. Some women suffered nausea, go figure, impaired vision, and skin reactions. But the dresses were only worn on special occasions. Oh, okay. It's, arsenic dresses weren't an everyday thing. It's got to be a nice affair. All right. Limiting exposure to the arsenic fabric, the garment makers were the real sufferers because many died to make this trend possible. Can you imagine? Now, I understand women will suffer for fashion, but to literally poison yourself to look good, and we are doing better in some things, right? It doesn't always feel like we're doing better, but that's progress. Why, though? Why would you do that? Why would you? I know it's poison, but look at my figure. I don't get it. <laughs> they, she has no toes. She must be good looking, you know? <laughs> And man, for any of us like me who are a little thicker set, those collars, like I'd be dead in a, in a minute. Like, I just don't have the neck for that. And that, it's, it's amazing the things we are enamored with and will love. And what we can fall in love with. And a lot of us as Christians and probably the last, I mean, it's, it's been since the beginning of Christianity, but definitely in the Western world in the last 20, 30 years, somehow we became in love with culture. We're enamored with it. We're obsessed with it. And, and so much so, it's really dissolved the strength of the church within us and on the rest of the world. We are weaker. We are confused. We don't know what's true anymore. We've torn each other down, and, and it's largely been driven by the idea of we love culture. We cross this gap from loving the world to being in love with the world. And that, that, that can be a fine line, and I think we crossed it. And now I believe what's happening, especially over the last three years or so, is we are in a time where God is doing a pruning, a, a separating, a sifting, so to speak, of saying, all right, who's in love with me and who isn't? Not, you know, who's the good church, you know, who voted this way, that, no, no, no. Who's in love with Jesus and who's not? And, and I think in that, maybe, maybe it's preparing us for some harder times. 
47% of Christians affirm that we are living in the end times, while 49% do not, with a 1.6% margin of error. 63% of evangelicals believe we are living in the end times. So if you're like, what's an evangelical? This church. <laughs> Churches like this. Not all the ones just in a gym. Just churches that believe this way. <laughs> Only gym churches. Um, <laughs> there's seven of us. But a lot of people, right? So we're even right there, straight down the middle, you have Christians who believe this is the beginning of the end. And others who are like, no, it's just bad times. And it'll change over soon. And it'll be different. I don't know. There's a lot of revelation-y things right now that I don't really like or wish weren't happening. That being said, John and Paul felt that way 2,000 years ago. But what's interesting enough is um, they were writing Scripture when they felt that way, so they were onto something. We know we're in the back half of it, whatever it is. And this is a moment where the guy who writes Revelation, who talks about to one church, you've lost your first love. You need to understand what love is. You need to get back to the love of the Savior, of your Lord. He writes the story in John 3 about when Jesus defines ultimately what love is. John chapter 3, Jesus is having a conversation with Nicodemus, who's a Pharisee. And this is the centerpiece of our faith scripture. Okay, this is what it all comes back to if you're a Christian. If you're a Christian and you don't know John 3.16, you may not be a Christian. Because <laughs> it's like the centerpiece, the everything moment. It all comes back to this. And if you don't understand this, you don't understand what it is to walk with Jesus and follow him. And he's having this conversation with the Pharisee. This wasn't with a crowd. This wasn't with all the religious leaders. It wasn't with kings. It wasn't with the prostitute in the corner. With a Pharisee, a religious leader who knows the law, has memorized probably the entire Old Testament as we know it. This guy comes with questions and he says, help me understand. And what's kind of neat about Nicodemus versus all the, some people like, we like to, in the church, we like to bash the Pharisees, right? Because it's the one group of people Jesus kind of beat up on. We're like, well, I want somebody to beat up on. So we get kind of behind it. Like, I like beating up religious people. No, Jesus was cool on beating up on religion, not religious people. There is a difference. <laughs> and Nicodemus isn't that. He's seeking the heart of God. And Jesus is like, hey, I'm ready and willing to answer these questions. Let's go. And then in John chapter 3, verses 16 through 8, 19, he explains what love is, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world to judge the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. There's no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who doesn't believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. 
and the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. If you want to know what the greatest miracle of all is, the greatest miracle of all is that God loves us. If you get nothing else out of today, get settle that in your heart. Well, I don't believe in God. Well, I'm wrestling with it. Well, you don't know what I've done. I, I'm not talking about you. I'm not talking about your love for him. I'm talking about his for you. The greatest miracle is that God would love us. And he does. Unworthy, when we're unwilling, and when we, we don't want it, he loves us. It's really kind of messed up. <laughs> we would say we have to draw a boundary. They're toxic. I don't want that person. To, we, God doesn't do that. God rips the boundaries in half, splits time in half, tears the veil wide open in the Holy of Holies to tell us, I love you. And I'd do anything for you. So much so he sent his son. Love is probably the deepest theological concept, the highest ethic, the character of God, and the most misunderstood idea in the world and in the church. We just don't know what it is anymore. This word here, when Jesus says, I, God so loved the world, the world is agapeo. It is not, that sounds Italian, didn't it? That wasn't right. But that's the word, agapeo, okay? And, and it's, not, it's not the love like, Jesse, love you, man. And I do love Jesse, but it's not that kind of love. Or it's not, honey, I love you so much. And I do, but it's not that kind of love. It's higher. It's outside, and it's holy. It's separate, and it's unique. It's not relational love, though it does relate to us. It's not sexual, though it is extremely intimate. It's a different love than our definition of love. For example, I could wear the t-shirt that says, I love New York, right? Popular t-shirt. And by today's standards, maybe I could marry New York. I don't know. <laughs> There was a lady you guys saw a while ago. There was a lady who literally tried to marry a train station. And somebody did, there's somebody always looking for a buck, did the ceremony. I don't understand. I want to find that guy and be like, what are you, where's your ordination papers? Because I'd really like to talk to this organization. But some, like that is now the time we live in. I love New York. We, see, we, we have, the problem is we have dumbed down and diminished everything. So I love you, Lord, and I love New York they don't mean the same things, but we're saying the same words. And even though that's not our intention, we have dumbed it down, watered it down so much, we don't know what it means anymore. We miss the definition of love. We live in a time of deconstruction of everything, including a deconstruction of terms, especially the word love. This love, the love of Jesus, the love of God, 
is the love that birthed all of creation. I like how this author says it clearly. The love of God is, first of all, creative, bestowing value rather than recognizing or responding to it. God's very act of creation is his primary act of loving, of freely expressing his own value and goodness in the world created. It is outside, offered upon, not just a reciprocal. See, when I found out my wife liked me and I like her, it's kind of easy, right? Some of you, though, if you're married long enough, at some point, you're going to have to love that spouse when they don't love you back. That is part of marriage. That's going to happen. Oh, not us. We're so in love. Uh Uh-huh. Give it time. (laughs) There will be a day you're not. Oh, not us. Our friendship will never, our friendship, like it's the best friendship ever. Give it time. This is one where God knew full well he would create us and endow value upon us simply by love. Completely outside of us and then into us and upon us. This is the love that birthed creation. This is the love that that dealt with Adam and Eve in the garden who openly, willingly sinned against God though they walked with him daily and said, I reject you anyway. And then God steps in and says, I'm still going to cover it. Teaches them sacrifice and covers their nakedness and deals with them and then blesses their family and multiplies their family. And then as one brother kills the other, he still says, Cain, I still love you. He doesn't wipe Cain out with a plague. See, he endures him because he loves him. And then as creation falls apart into madness and chaos, when God says, I want to wipe it all out, he decides, I'm going to spare some because I love my creation. And he does through Noah and his family. And then he eventually shows up to a guy named Abraham who has no connection. And he says, I'm going to start a people and I'm going to preserve them and love them for thousands of years. And as he does, God raises up prophets as those people dwell back into the sin. They join Adam and Eve in the garden again and say, no God, I reject you. And over and over, thousands, and they kill the people God sends to them. And God says, I love you. And I'm holding on. All the way for thousands of years, God comes to Moses and he says, I'm going to teach you how to be a people. I'm going to pull you out of slavery and I'm going to offer value upon you. I'm going to part waters for you. I'm going to civilize you as a people from not being, not being slaves anymore. Over and over. The lavish, anybody who thinks the Old Testament is a cruel, malicious God, is, I love you, but you're kind of stupid. You don't understand this book at all. This is a God who's merciful and loving and compassionate, enduring with us time and again and again for thousands of years as we openly mock and reject him all the way to the point of a little girl and a young man in a stable, in a manger, in the middle of nowhere, and he gives us everything. Because he gives us himself. This is what God means when he says, 
I love you this much. If you think Moses was in awe of the love of God when the waters parted, Moses was more in awe at this moment right here in Bethlehem. This was more awesome. When, when Elijah called down fire from heaven and burned up the altar and the prophets of Baal were wiped out, Elijah stands in awe of this moment of the love of God right here. I get it because I've done it many times, even this week. God, where is your love? It's right here. This is no ordinary love. This is not man-made love. This is the love of God, of the Creator, birthed outside of us and given upon us. This is the definition of what love really is. It's the plumb line. Here, here's a good example. So if I'm doing a project at home and I got a I, gotta, I got something to cut, and I need to make a cut. Sometimes, right, I'm going to grab my square here. It's called a square, but it's an L. I don't know why. All right. And I'm going to use the uncut edge to then mark my line. Why would I do that? You can talk to me. It's all right. Well, I, I know there's guys in the trades in our church. Help me out here, guys. What? Because it's straight. It's untouched. It's a pure line. It's fixed. I would draw my lines, my cuts, my design from the original design. This would be what I would use to define what love is. To define what truth is. To define what reality is. And we have undone it in some kind of misconstrued idea of loving God with culture. What we should be doing is taking our lives and measuring our love against this. What does this say what love is? What does the cross say what love is? What does the resurrected Christ say what love is? This is it. Not what we feel, what we think. We can feel crazy things. I told Nathan last night, multiple times in my life, years ago, thankfully not recently, but I had anxiety attacks that I thought I was dying and having a heart attack. And what's interesting about an anxiety attack like that is you have all the symptoms. You have tightness of chest, you have uh, uh, elevated heart rate, and you have an, an inability to breathe fully. It's a good mimicking of a heart attack, and it feels very real as that's what it is, and yet that's not what it is. All the feelings are real and there, but they're not truth to what I thought the situation was. Do you see what I mean? Nobody can know what love really is without Jesus. Don't get me wrong. They have romantic love, 
maybe sexual love, brotherly love, sisterly love. Yes, man can know that. But until you know the love of God, you don't really understand love. Until love, maybe I should say it this way, until love is defined by agapeo, by God's love, by the love of Jesus Christ, you don't know what love is. What you have is a skewed version, and you think we have straight lines. And I know this because the Bible actually tells me this. Romans 5, 5. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Do you see what I'm saying? This is not a love you attained. It was a love that was given to you and we will not willingly receive when we say yes to Jesus. And when that's put inside of us, bam, the blinders are off and now I get what love is. When my son Colin was born, I remember just hitting me for days and days. I remember just holding him, weeping, because I remember just thinking to myself, God, you love me like this, but like infinitely and perfectly? That's ridiculous. That's the plumb line. That God loves you like that. And we give up on it, and we... We, because the truth is it seems too good to be true. And it is. So we deconstruct it. We break it apart. We say, well, that's not good enough love. We live in a time of deconstruction. But until we accept this creator divine love, we're just not going to know. We're going to live in this blind search When somebody says, you know, as a Christian, you think you're better, I come to the place where I'm like, you know, hear me out on this. But yeah, you're kind of right. And it's not I'm better because I have more value. It's because I've encountered divine agape love and I understand what the definition of all things is now. I know what the plumb line is. I know what the point of it is. I'm not smarter than you. I'm not of more value, but I know real love. I understand the definition. I'm not less human. I just understand the definition. For example, if we had a rocket scientist here in the room, and he was able to sit and explain the mathematics of something, guess what? When it comes to mathematics or making something fly, he's smarter. Nobody would say, oh, you think you're better than me because you... No, we'd be like, well, in this arena, yeah, he's better than me. That's true. That offends me. Okay, but it's still true. (laughs) Some of you guys are welders. I cannot weld. You are better at me than welding. (laughs) Does it mean you are more valuable? No. Except on a welding site. (laughs) Much more so. You have more value there. In that sense. In that you have an understanding I don't have. And when you have divine agape love, you have something the world does not have. And it's not because you bought it. It's because somebody bought you. 
it creates in us greater humility. Not pride, but it also creates in us a knowledge that the world doesn't have. We do have a definition and an understanding of love. They don't. And now we are living in a time. And, and, and what I would say is, this is the problem with Christians giving up even cultural ground. We forfeited agape love for phileo, brotherly love, or eros, erotic, or romantic love. We forfeited agape love, God love, affecting culture for other loves. But we're using the same word and we don't understand why it's falling apart. We've created a very loveless, or I should say agape-less, a society. Right now, euthanasia on demand is exploding in Canada. Because life has very little to no value when not endued from the love of a creator. It's only comfort or feeling. It's different now. Abortion on demand. Why? Because life has lost value because it's not intrinsically loved by something higher. Do you see what I mean? Are you following me? I would say LGBTQ. We'll talk about that stuff. Does somebody of the same gender love somebody else of the same? Sure. They can love it, but it's not agape love. And any love, including between my wife and I, or anything that is highest in my life above agape love, will always fall short. It may take a year, may take a hundred years, but eventually it won't be enough. Because this love, God's love, the love of Jesus Christ, has to define me. Or I have no definition. And if anything, what it does, when we bring it all down to this level and deconstruct, that's what it does. It constantly deconstructs, it tears apart because it's idolatry. It's bringing everything down to our level instead of God taking us up to his. You know, in the 1990s, the Democratic Party said, no, 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 we don't want civil unions. I think they lied. In the 2000s, Joe Biden himself is quoted as saying, I'll just read the quote. Joe Biden said in 2006, you can look it up, marriages between a man and a woman and states must respect that. Sometimes I feel like politicians aren't being honest. Sometimes. And if you're like, well, you're picking on the left, people on the right, Mitt Romney just voted for this. A supposed committed Mormon, which that's a whole other conversation. But <laughs> what happens? And here's the thing. Some of you would say, well, that's me. I believe in that, and I love that. Okay. I'm not throwing stones here. But what I would tell you is eventually it won't be enough. It'll never be enough. Because the love of this world will always demand more, eventually. 
Many times in our marriage when we fell apart is when one or both of us was relying on the other to be Jesus. To fulfill my every need. And I'm not talking simply in the bedroom, but anywhere. To affirm me enough. To encourage me enough. To value me enough. To tell me enough respectful things. And eventually I continue to find out she'll never be enough because she's not supposed to be, because she's not Jesus. And how dare I put her in that position? It's not fair to her, to me, but most of all, it's unfair to the Lord. I want the love of God to be the highest thing in my life because there is no higher definition of love. But he defines it. God, I don't understand your word today, but I do know it's good. So if I'm missing it, you know what we do now? If I don't get it, therefore it's not valuable. Do you realize how elitist and prideful that is? How much of our culture is saying, well, they were stupid back then. We know better now. And then like a year later, oh, I guess that causes blood clot. Come on. Now look, I don't shame the person who believed in that. Okay, I understand. Hard times, scary. We're doing the best we know how. And you know what? Sometimes the best we know how creates arsenic dresses. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? We're not nearly as brilliant as we think we are. We're not nearly as advanced as we're convinced ourselves that we are. We definitely need the love of Jesus Christ. Anybody here find in their own life they tried something, it wasn't fulfilling, and Jesus was better? Anybody? Just a show of hands. Raise them up. Oh, a few of you, right? Some of you are like, no, I haven't found that. You will. Give it time. I just hope you find out this side of eternity. No relationship is going to be enough. No amount of money is going to be enough. Just the love of Jesus Christ. And you know what's sad? One of the saddest things I find today with the whole sexuality thing, it's all a Freudian gambit being played on you right now. Sigmund Freud is con- now has inculcated and been indoctrinated into every belief system, and, and yet he was a very despicable man. Doesn't mean he didn't have good insights. But he played a lot of sexual tricks on people and began to redefine humanity based on their sexual desires. It's an idea that's less than 200 years old. Do you realize before 200 years ago, nobody defined homosexuality or, or bisexuality? Did it happen? It did. But it was never defined as a person, it was an act. Not, I never walk around saying, you know, I'm a straight guy. Why? Because that's not the sum total of who I am. And it's a Freudian gambit being played on our society and our world right now to diminish your value, not increase it. You're more. Way more than who you love, what you're attracted to. What if we did that with your job? Oh, man. That guy's great at laying tile. He's the best tile layer I know. 
Lay tile, Dan. Dan the tile guy, that's who he is. We should, no, do it the other way. Tile Dan. Why? Because you spend so many hours of your week doing it, more than anything else probably. Would anybody here feel diminished if they were known solely by their job? Sure you would. What if, what if all day long I said to my wife, and other people called her, hey, Brian's wife, how are you today? Brian's wife, I just needed to know something from you today. Brian's wife, I think you're great. Would not go well. <laughs> right? Because it's a diminishing of the love of God. This moment right here is the plumb line, the definition of agapeo, of the love of God being poured out for humanity, saying, you want value, purpose, and knowledge of who you are? Come to the manger. Come to the table of the Lord. Come to know Jesus. The dominant creative, this is a cool quote, the dominant creative character of divine love seeks expression in the grace love of human beings for their God and co-humans. And there may be here that the risk of distorting human love of God to self-satisfaction, which Nigrin discerns may be confronted. Basically, theologians arguing, we keep bringing it down to our level and distorting this agape love. See, love for God is Obedience. Agape love for God is obedience. I will obey you, Lord. John 14, 15. These are God's words. And, and through John again, right? The one who God used to record this and all these things. And God used to record to the very end. The last guy to write about the, uh, the canon of Scripture was also the same John. And he says, if you love me, obey my commandments. The love of God says, I'll follow you. I'll do what you want. See, some people, like, there's great, like, these tweetable phrases, like, no, you don't, you, don't have to, you don't have to behave, you just have to believe. Yeah, no, <laughs> not true. And, and any belief that doesn't affect my behavior isn't really a belief. Oh, I love you, honey. Well, take me on a date. Ah, I'm kind of busy. It's not love. I don't know what it is, but it ain't love. It's definitely not agape love. Agape love says, I, and, and, and here's the thing, it's not I better and I ought to. Agape love changed me and I want to. God, change, I want to follow you. I want to do what you want. What blesses you? Agape love for God is loving one another. John 13, 35. If you love... Uh, your love for one another will prove to the world you're my disciples. I would hope when they see us as a local body, people are like, this church, they get it. They get what love is. You say, well, it's, they don't because I've seen people in this church gossip. If you want a sinless, perfect church, you will not find it. It's always filled with broken people. We're all sinners. We're all in need of the grace and change of God. But we do love one another. We're going to forgive one another. We're going to move forward with one another. We're going to butt heads. You're going to disagree at times. You're going to be like, didn't wear his PJs, jerk. 
okay, okay, can you forgive me? And let's keep moving forward. Believe me and thank me. Love for God is love the world as he did. Not how we're, we're redefining it. I've watched Christian artists I grow up with fall off biblical orthodox Christianity in mass. People I love and respect. And they're, they're, they're just giving up. I watch Christian leaders that I've really enjoyed their teaching just drop off the map. What is happening? Why? Now, I hate them, but I am angry at what they're doing. I watch Christians in mass just leave. I gave that sermon a few years ago. It's like the take my ball and go home attitude. Well, if Christianity doesn't go the way I want, I don't understand it anymore, etc., I'm going to take my faith and go home. It's a selfish, worldly attitude. You think it's love. It isn't. Now look, I'm okay with wrestle. I'm okay with doubt. I'm okay with struggle. I'm okay with saying, I don't get it and I don't understand. Fair. Good. Welcome to the saints. Mother Teresa wrote that in her book. I'm pretty sure the Psalms have just a couple of those moments. (laughs) Over and over. Paul openly rejected John Luke and said, I want nothing to do with him. Look, the solid brother. One of the originals. The love for God, the love of one another being poured out. I would encourage you, we have become selfish in our love. And I don't mean thrive, I mean the general broader church. We've become very selfish in our love. And what if we just got better at loving the church more? We are so good. Give it, give it enough time and we begin to pick on one another. Oh man, I don't like the way they played in worship today. Did you see? That was so performance driven. Because you can read their hearts. <laughs> you know what the Bible says about us reading each other's hearts? It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and who can know it? There's an inference there, not us. We don't know each other's hearts. We don't know our own. The only heart we can really get to know is the heart for God and the love he has for us. What I would tell you is lean into the love of the Lord more and more of your life. And his love, not ours. Learn more about his love, not our own. I don't think there's anything wrong with an Enneagram or personality test. We do one of those tests in our growth track. As we, as, there's nothing wrong. But it may be time to stop trying to figure out what our own definitions are. And start understanding him again. What is his definition of love? What does he look like in my life? What is he saying? Instead of me being the highest authority... Well, I don't understand it, therefore it can't be true. Really? That is not where I want to land. And it's unbelievably arrogant. I don't understand it is not a bad phrase. 
I don't like it is understandable. But saying, and now I quit, that's kind of sad. He loved the world as this. Matthew 5, you're the salt of the earth. What good is salt if it's lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It'll be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, the city on a hilltop that can't be hidden. No one hides a lamp and puts it under a basket. Instead, it's placed on a stand. The love of God preserves. It agitates. It exposes. It illuminates. When you're the salt of the earth, sometimes people are going to be like, oh, that's so good. You added so much flavor. And other times you're going to be salt on a wound as the salt of the earth, and it's going to burn and hurt, but it's also going to purify. Sometimes light, I can't see. Oh, thank you for turning that on. And other times it's going to expose things. You ever walk into a dressing room, and then they're lighting, and you're just like, oh, oh, I don't remember being this fat. (laughs) I am not. I look better than this. H&M, I hate you. (laughs) Right? But that's what light does. Sometimes it lights things up, and other times it exposes things we didn't want lit up. And that's what we're meant to be. But why would we do this? Why would we want this love of God? In a world that absolutely, the world hates this love. Some days it loves it. When it feeds their purposes and makes them feel better, And the love of God can do that sometimes. It's good. And other days it agitates and purifies and exposes. And those days we hate that agape love. Why would we do it? In a world where you can love anything and everything as much or as little as you want, as as in, in any given mode, you can flow in and out of what your idea of love is. Why would I choose this love? which seems a little more focused and definitely exclusionary. And don't kid yourself, the love of God is exclusive. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It's exclusive. But if there was only one way out of a trapped building, I think we'd take it. Why? Why would we choose this love? Because this love isn't easy. The same guy wrote later on in 1 John chapter 4. He writes this. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. just want to remind you, and we'll leave this up for the rest of the time, the greatest miracle is that God loves us. The greatest miracle is not when you love him back. That's awesome. But that's not the greatest miracle. Is that he loves you. On my worst day, he loves me. On the day I want to give up, quit, And I'm like, where are you? He loves me. And I'm a little bit like, stop it. (laughs) Because that's too good. And it's hard to believe. Because nobody loves like that. Exactly. 
Only Jesus loves like this. Only God has perfect love. Only God can define what love is in your life and to know, to tell you what it is to be truly loved. For him to know every iota of your past, present, and future. Everything that's wrong with you. You're like, I just want to be enough. You never will be. But he is enough. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. We hope this message spoke to you and helped you grow in your knowledge of and love for God. Visit us online anytime at EncounterThrive.com and reach out with questions, prayer requests, or comments. We hope to see you for our in-person services in Lockport, Illinois, Sundays at 10.